hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 58, the conclusion of the Kate Matrasova case. This has been a good informative podcast, John, and it's been uh, it's been a trying podcast for our, a lot of different reasons. Really it's hustling. reflective. Yeah. And it's been a critical incident, certainly for the family. And we've been involved with a lot of critical incidents, and we're going to talk about critical incidents as we, we continue on in our podcast. 
But this is so engaging, it brings up a lot of feelings for a lot of different people. And I think what resonates through me from every search and rescuer and everybody involved, they wish they could have saved her. That's what I remember. I wish we could have saved her. It's that yearning. Isn't isn't that the absolute hard part and feeling? I know you've been on some of those rescues and I've been on my fair share as well. And man, this one, as I go through the story and and listen more and more into the, the breakdown of how it happened, the more tragic it becomes, the more helpless you kind of feel Mm. that she's not going to be saved, you know, and that's just, that's, that's a horrible feeling, but the lessons we've learned from this case, just for any type of lost hiker situation, mountain climbing, you know, lost hunter, conservationist angler. We see a lot of those, Mm -hmm. um, my new home state of Montana. I mean, looking back in the history books of so many, lost hunters and anglers succumbed, succumbed to weather, got turned around in a blizzard and some were never found. Mm. Or, you know, if they were, they might've been found the following hunting season uh, after the spring thaw again. Like we talked about in the earlier parts of, of this story in the earlier episodes, it really comes down to how brutal mother nature can be, especially when weather comes in. Mm. And once you get bad weather, if you don't have the gear and you don't have a way of having, finding shelter and sustaining yourself out there for a day, two, three, maybe longer, it may be a long time before rescue officials, like in this case, can get to you and it's too late. And it's just, it's heartbreaking, man. But, but the lessons we learn how to better be prepared to, to prevent this at the individual level, it doesn't, the burden doesn't have to weigh on rescuers to, to, to be saved. You can save yourself in, in 90% of the situations and conditions if you're just prepared. Myself included, a lot of times we're not prepared, are we? No, but I certainly want to dedicate this to all those volunteer search and rescue groups around the country that, that do this uh, out of love, yeah. out of selflessness, out of personal giving back. And we see that nationwide. Search and rescue people are incredible people that just give, 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 and give. And I just keep seeing that and I appreciate it. There's a lot of nonprofits involved and I speak to that at the end of this. Uh, that we do a, I do a dedication at the end of this, but this isn't a happy ending. This isn't. This is a story that we're telling to influence people into trying to make the correct decisions, remembering about Mother Nature. Just be everything you can be prepared, checking weather constantly, being in touch with yourself and understanding what you're capable of and what you're not capable of and and trying to get all the information and transition that in. Because unfortunately, I wish I could change the ending to the story. It's a tragedy. It's sad. I I bring myself back to that when we're, this whole has been, this whole podcast has been revisiting a tragic event. Right. And we couldn't save her. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. That is a hard feeling, but kudos to our first responders and our, and our search and rescue folks. Because as you know, these are unpaid positions for 90% of these, uh, of these operatives out there trying to save lives. And they're doing it around family requirements. They're doing it around their day jobs. They're getting called out at all, hour, all hours of the night. And that is the search and rescue continuum throughout our whole great country. Mm-hmm. Um, so kudos to all of you guys and gals that do that, that help us on the official capacity. And you're just out there grinding because we, uh, you know, think of the loss of life we would have so much greater than what we do if we didn't have these volunteers nationwide. Oh. And even though this, like you said, Wayne, this is a sad story where we didn't save her. Think of all the stories where we do save her or him. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of them mm. from these search and rescue officials from all over the country. And I've been blessed and you've been blessed to be part of those rescue operations where there is a happy ending. There is hope. And that's what this, that's what this podcast and this series of episodes really puts out there. Not a happy ending, but there's hope. And there's, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel because there's so many people out there that are willing to risk their lives to save others. Episode 58, final episode of the Kate Matrasova case. Thank you for listening to Warden's Watch. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. I find myself back again with Ty Gagne, uh, the author of Where You Will Find Me. And just I wanted to wrap up uh, at the end of this podcast. A, I want to introduce his new book, but just wrap up Kate Matrasova Incident. And for me, it's reflecting back, Ty, to probably one of the 
the biggest search and rescue missions that affected me in my career. It's just, uh, yeah, it's been reflecting, reflecting on officers as a search manager, the stress that comes into it as that you're sending people out there on some of the most serious conditions. And I, I want people when they, when they listen to this podcast to feel the cold, to feel the cold, the second coldest place on earth. You right. know, we've had a cold snap here and it's still not cold enough to, to get that feeling. Retrospecting back to, to, to everything you have and uh, the interviews you've done, how, how would you wrap this, this whole thing up? Well, it's good to see you again. We haven't seen each other. In, it's been a year since we, we originally recorded. Yes. Yeah, we were in person. So it's good to connect. Um, well, it's, you know, it's ironic and eerie that we're talking about this. It's Friday and Monday is the six year, mm. six year anniversary of the tragedy. And I, I think reflecting, I'm, you know, I'm still talking with groups about it uh, as early as I just this past week. And I, if, I never would have expected that to happen. And again, I don't, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's anything I've done. I think it's just the, the compelling nature of the story mm. of who Kate was. And, and also I think this, it, in a way it, it celebrates is probably the wrong word, but the, the volunteerism and the service of our search and rescue teams in New Hampshire, at both fish and game, New Hampshire army, national guard, civil air patrol, and, and the volunteer teams, you know, like MRS and ABSAR. And that, I think that speaks to the best of who we are, you know, as a state. No, I, I would totally agree with you. And that certainly reflects in, in the next book that you wrote, The Last Traverse. And you always put these subtitles on it. I like li- li- listing just The Last Traverse that sticks with me. Tragedy, Resilience, in the Winter Whites. The Last Traverse. And this is your new book that just came out. And from what I've understood, I've, I've talked to some people that it's, it's flying off the bookshelves. People, you set the stage with uh, where you will find me as a writer. And I've heard people say that the last traverse is better. Uh, just like me being a podcaster, I think I've gotten better over the years. I think you as, mm-hmm. as a writer became better in your second book. And I, I, w- I would agree with it. Can, can you give us the insight on the last traverse and maybe uh, some of the different methodology that you learned through writing the first book and into the second book? Yeah. That, so um, this was a 2008 search and rescue mission that took place on Franconia Ridge. And I think one of the reasons that th- there's been the response to this, that there has been is back in 2008, you know, there wasn't, there really wasn't social media. It, a lot of the news was getting to us through television and through the newspaper. And this story, as remarkable as it is, ebbed with time. And I also think it goes to the humility of the search and rescue community in New Hampshire, because many of the stories within this larger story were kept within the individual teams themselves that uh, participated, and even more so within the, the teams of people that were on particular trails and routes over the course of that afternoon and, and, and nighttime. So those stories remained siloed, but when you started connecting all the dots, you, you just recognize what an amazing effort on the part of, again, Search and Rescue in New Hampshire and the multiple teams involved. And then, you know, the fact that James Osborne survived with the core body temperature that set a record in the Northeast and one of the lowest in the country for dryland hypothermia. Yeah, no. Um, and I, yeah. Certainly can. I think the other, story. to your other point, the, I think the difference between book one and book two is, and I think I said this last time we were together when I came to talk to you, it was like, all right, who is this guy? What's, (laughs) what's he about? And I think in some ways the teams had a higher degree of trust in me to sit down with me and share, share their stories. So I think you get a more comprehensive look at their perspectives and, and search and rescue operations in New Hampshire. And I'm still incredibly grateful for the access I got for the first book, but I think it was even more so for this one. Yeah, no, you just, you blaze trails and yeah. And I, I would say the way you presented the very unique teams in New Hampshire, because no other place does it to the extent New Hampshire does with volunteerism, the high quality people and training that brings to bear in the White Mountains because of the type of people that live around it, because the whites are here, they can train here, they can recreate here. 
they 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 love that winter type stuff and then they they are selfless in that they they lend all that expertise to search and rescue missions so they can yeah it's just it's something that i don't think happens anywhere else to the degree it happens here and without it we couldn't function we could not function because yeah. we as and the humility game, yes yes the, the humility of the the guys that definitely and, and that's probably where they didn't want to talk to you because they don't want to talk what they do very well about. You know, that's what I'm learning is sometimes humility is a great thing, but let's tell that story. Let's tell that story about the New Hampshire volunteer search and rescue teams because it's special and it's inspiring. And somebody told me once, you know, in order to be your hero, you need to embrace being a hero. And if you fight it, it, you just, you put a taint on being a hero so embrace being a hero. And it was probably the best advice I ever had because I think I was a little in conflict because you don't want the limelight on you all the time. You, you, you want, to, want to shed it, but embrace being a hero because that's what everybody else deserves. Well, I, I, yeah, I appreciate that's well said. And I think from a prevention standpoint too, when because I've gotten a lot of feedback from readers who didn't realize just what goes into these missions mm-hmm. and and. And the, the level of service and selflessness that goes into it. And I, I think one of the really important takeaways for readers has been, you know, I, I want to prepare when I go out into the backcountry, I'm going to prepare myself in a way that I don't want to put the burden rescue community. I, you know, I want to be prepared. I want to be ready. I, I want to be self-reliant and I'm going to, I'm going to prepare at a different level than I had previously. And I, I think that's all very good. It's good for the hiking community. I think it's good for search and rescue. I absolutely agree. And, and it is. I mean, by telling our stories, I, I don't know how many people when Northwoods Law aired uh, said, Wayne, I really didn't know what you did for work. And then your book came out and I had the same reaction. People calling me after reading you know, your first book where you will find me and say, Wayne, I didn't realize what you guys did as far as search and rescue to the degree that you guys engaged with the family and managed that. Yeah, it was it was an eye opener to a lot of people on how the system works. Uh, we are not the most highly trained people out there. We're not. We we train up to a degree, but we are not the most highly. We rely on those volunteers that are highly trained, and then we rely on their influence and in what they say. Can you do that? If they can't do that, then we say then it can't be done. Um, mm-hmm. Do we hear that a lot? No, we don't hear that a lot. And then yep. as search managers, we have to, you know, we have to take those risks. And that's why you wrote the first book. And yeah, public, I mean, we just had this discussion earlier before we went live with a, a Franconia Trail Ridge Runners and that I brought it up and I didn't even read the union leader editorial that he brought up that they should have read your last Traverse book prior to taking a trail run on the Franconia Ridge and having a search and rescue incident, possibly lo- losing limbs in the long run. Mm-hmm. So being, being putting it out there, exposing it, uh, letting people know that the, who the heroes are and what they do, and yeah, hopefully we can learn out of every tragedy. That's that's always that should be everybody's goal. Out of every tragedy, there's something to learn from, something to carry on. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and I, I the way I, I write them and is I hope that obviously I I want people that go out into the backcountry to to embrace it and to reflect, you know, I'm not trying to tell people this is what you should be doing. I'm hoping that people will reflect on their own practices, how they make decisions, what drives them. And then I hope those discussions pour over into their, the groups they go out with or the pairs or, or what have you. But I also, I, I hope there are lessons for all of us, even for those that choose not to go into the backcountry, just in, in terms of how decisions are influenced by external things and the goals that we set for ourselves and, and how we can manage those risks around it. Because I think what applies up there, up high applies at sea level too. No, for sure. Definitely great books to read, to learn from true live events put in paper so that anytime we can pick it up and read it and get inspired by those people, learn from the decisions that were made that day. And now we continue with my interview regarding operations of the day we located Kate Matrasova. From a mission standpoint, I believe you had a team go into Madison Gulf 
with a radio relay, just because as you said, it's just, it's so remote out there. The Avsar team ascended uh, Valley Way and then MRS, I think you had heading to King Ravine. Was that for Avalanche Danger with their technical gear? What what was your thought process with team deployments? Well, we had two of those teams and we were covering stuff below tree line. So, and we had a hasty team as well. So if anybody got into right. trouble, that was uh, the, the more, more, more important than anything else was having that hasty team. A, we felt if uh, we could deploy them if she was located and they needed help. The other teams were just trying to cover some beacon areas, get some radio coverage. To, to be honest with you, I don't think we thought we were going to be able to cover and do what we did that day. Thanks to those rescuers on the ground that were able to get to you know, Star Lake because, you know, I don't think we really thought we could do what we did that day. I don't think, and we, we were being cautious because of the weather, mm-hmm. trying to do a lot of things below tree line, getting that one team up there to assess it at um, the Madison Spring Hut, assessing the situation, making that decision to move forward to those first coordinates. But everything else was kind of in support of that and covering areas that we had personal locator beacon positions on trying to be in proximity. And there was there was some in King Ravine. There was there was they were everywhere. We sent some over to uh, Great Gulf. Uh, there was some locations over there below Tree Line. We sent teams into. Yeah, it was just it was covering those locator beacon device locations to start covering the things we, we were capable of doing that day. Not really thinking we were going to be able to cover the ridge line to the point of location. I, I just don't think we. I think we were very lucky that that team took on that mission and was able to accomplish it because I don't think we really, as much as we wanted to, I don't think we really were, we thought we were going to be able to. We wanted to do all these other things and clear these and then be in a position because the winds were supposed to start to decrease as the day went on to be in a position there to get out there. And they had diminished compared to what they were that previous night. And now an interview with Brett Fitzgerald, a member of the team that located and recovered Kate Matrasova. So today I have with me Brett Fitzgerald, who was actually on the Matrasova search and rescue mission. And Brett, thanks for joining us on Warden's Watch and, and bringing us back to that day, that recovery, unfortunately. But before I get into that, I just uh, I want to get into some of your background and history because I always refer to the teams that go ahead of the game wardens that we need to call the A-team, the, the Navy SEALs, the Delta Force of Search and Rescue. And certainly you're counted among those, uh, especially in the Kate Matrasova case. Um, so if we can go a little bit into your background, that, that, I think that would be helpful. I've been climbing for the better part of, I guess, 20 years now. And uh, my brother and I started Northeast Mountaineering, which is a guide service based out of Jackson, uh, New Hampshire. Um, and yeah, I've been on Avsar for I guess four years. Great. But um, the Matrasova recovery was one of my first missions with Avsar. So when you got the call, I mean, uh, you looked at the weather. You understand what you were dealing with? Yeah, I was. I actually was out. I believe skiing that day because nobody was really out climbing that much. Although we did have a group up on Mount Washington, uh, a guided group going up the lion's head trail. Okay. Um, so I was out skiing and then I was having an apres ski and I got the phone call saying um, there's someone missing on the Northern Presidentials and um, they were thinking about uh, organizing a response team in the morning, the following morning uh, at 8 a.m. So uh, that was the first, first kind of flag that something might happen. Um, and then we got a call back maybe a half hour later saying it was on and whoever can respond mm. called back and, and plan for it. Getting ready that night, I'm assuming, getting your, your gear ready and looking at the weather, kind of thinking what you're going to deal with. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, the forecast, obviously, being a guide, um, we were very in tune kind of with daily what the what the forecast was and what the long-term term, uh, forecast was. So we had known that that weekend specifically it was going to be I don't know what one of the worst weekend we've had in, in decades um, mm. in terms of wind speed and wind, wind chills up, up on the presidential. So um, I know my brother in, in Ty's book commented on it, but 
Uh, it's pretty rare that you look at the upper summits forecast and tell your clients like there is 0% chance we're going to get to the summit today. And that happened that weekend because it was just, I mean, it's just un- unbearable, you know, especially bringing people up there without experience. So yeah, it was, uh, we knew we were in for cold. We knew we were in for a lot of wind and, and time would be of the essence once we got above tree line. Do you pre- prepare differently when you do that? Or is that pretty much you, you go the same way you normally go? Uh, I definitely brought more clothes than I would normally just because we didn't really know how long we'd be up there uh, if we were going to be up there um, if it got to that point. So yeah, I definitely busted out the down down pants, <laughs> had the big boots. And then most of us, if not all of us, have our, our search and rescue pack, something kind of des- designated for when we respond. And that has, you know, everything from an expanded first aid kit and, you know, our avalanche beacons, transceivers, probes, everything kind of already there, ready to go. So you arrive at Randolph Fire Department uh, to, to get ready, get your assignments. About what time do you get there? I believe we reconvened. The time that we were given was 8 a.m. Uh, so we got there, I think, 7.30 a.m. maybe. Um, I just remember driving on the road to to the fire department and thinking, man, it looks like ice road truckers. <laughs> just the blowing <laughs> snow and that like snake pattern on the road and, yeah. and looking up at the mountain range and being like, holy moly, like that's that's unusual, right? And um, so, yeah, we got there at 7.30. We had to check in, really just last minute preparations, repacking your pack, make sure you got everything that you need, determining whether you wanted to bring snowshoes or not because that was kind of mm-hmm. a big that was a big decision, right? Um, you know, I personally didn't bring them mostly because I thought in those winds with two sails on my feet, that, that doesn't really make sense. Um, however, half the team felt more comfortable doing that. So that, that part, what you actually wanted to bring was kind of up to you. As long as you had beacon probe and shovel, then you could, you could make whatever decisions you wanted. And then right before, yeah, right around eight o'clock, I'd say we all kind of reconvened and had a big overview briefing of kind of what was going on in more details the first time we really understood what was going on completely and then we all hit the cars and we headed up to Appalachia yeah and then just going up the mountain was it uneventful or you know un- I should say in tree line that that first uh, few miles yeah in tree going, line. going up the valleyway trail it was I mean we were, we were going fast right and we we wanted to get up there we knew we had to pick up a litter on the way that the initial response team the night before had left up there. So we were moving fairly quickly, but we also all stayed together. I wouldn't, I'm not sure it really hit any of us that we'd, we'd actually find her, you know, in those conditions, we kind of, with the multiple beacon pings and kind of the uncertainty of where she might actually be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any of us actually thought we, there wasn't a level of certainty, I should, should say that, that we were going to be the team to find that find her. You know, um, she could have been anywhere. She could have blown into the ravine. She could have been somewhere completely different with the pings. You know, the location beacon not actually working well. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? Who knows what it could have been, you know? And um, so I, I, I don't think the, the mentality or the attitude was really, you know, we were, we were all friends. So we were just kind of like chatting and hanging out and, you know, going for a hasty hike. <laughs> <laughs> um, understanding that there could be some, something pretty serious at the other end of it. Right. But, but it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty relaxed. I don't know. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like a, a somber event, I wouldn't say. And then you break tree line. Is there any difference that day of any other day you've yeah. been up there? You've been up there a lot. I mean, you've done a lot of yeah. mountaineering. You've, you bring clients up in there. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we stop below tree line, just below tree line. Um, kind of before you make that last, left-hand turn and then right-hand turn out of the trees up to Madison hut and just reconvene and kind of had that talk, you know, the leaders of the group basically said, it's, there's no pressure here. If you guys feel comfortable going, then we're, we're going to go. If you don't, there's no shame in, in sending it out. It's, it's, it's gnarly. Um, you could already hear the winds obviously. And the cold was, was really cold. We were, we were hiking really fast, but we we're hiking in a lot of stuff, <laughs> yeah. a lot more stuff than normal. Um, right. So yeah, it was it was pretty obvious as soon as as you broke tree line, and it happened to be Mason Irish and my turn to carry the litters. So as we were breaking tree line, um, a big gust came through, and it literally picked us up 
off the ground, blew us into the, you know, the scrub pine up there, probably four feet off the trail, like uphill. Wow. And we, we both looked at each other. He's like, you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. You all right? He's like, yeah, I'm good. And we're like, all right, well, let's try to get back to the trail. <laughs> um, it was just, yeah, I've never experienced something like that where it actually picked me up off the ground and displaced me four feet. Wow. Um, so that was a, you know, a sign of what we, what we were going to see, you know, over the next hour or two mm-hmm. uh, as we were fully exposed. Right. And then you're hiking into that wind. Um, on the way back. On the so way back. yeah, okay. going, we actually went, we, we reconvened again behind Madison spring hut as a group and made final preparations. You know, anybody that wanted to take off snowshoes or put snowshoes on crampons, this was the time to do it, get full face coverage, make sure you were well-prepared to deal with, I don't know what it was, minus 78 wind chills or something yeah. wild. So yeah, we reconvened behind the hut thinking that we were going to be able to get into the hut, but the lock was completely frozen. So we couldn't. Mm. So that was kind of our plan. A was okay. This is going to be our safe space, which quickly, quickly realized it wasn't going to work, but the wind was at our back at that point. So we all kind of tucked out behind the hut just to see what it was going to be like actually hiking back into the wind afterwards. Gotcha. Um, and we do that a lot with our clients too, because it's, it's pretty easy to hike with wind at your back, you know, right. and then it's a whole different story in your face, especially the cold, not even just the exhaustion, but the cold of it is a big, big thing. So we, we tested that experienced it quickly before we actually went out there over to Star Lake and, and then all the way back, we were into the wind, which was pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. So when you test it, you're thinking, you're thinking this is actually doable. We can actually do this. You're kind of assessing that because it could have been at that point where you could have said, we're, yeah. we're not going to do this. Yeah, totally. That was behind Madison Spring Hut was kind of the last chance to really say, uh, yeah, this just isn't for me without fully being exposed to what we were. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to prepare ourselves just mentally and physically and as a team, recognizing like we're not even going to be able to communicate, right? Like you could have right. somebody five feet from you and you can't hear them mm-hmm. just from the wind. Right. Um, so, you know, kind of making all those last minute assessments on the fly and, and communicating with each other while we could just, this is what I'm thinking, this is what you're thinking. If you see this, give us a wave or do, you know, kind of figuring that stuff out before we actually went out there and into the wind to try to minimize as much time as we could being exposed. So yeah, it was, uh, at that point it became very real, you know, and we all just kind of went into, okay, we have a ton of experience. We're going to rely on each other and let's, let's do this thing. Mm. So any problems with the wind at your back pushing you too hard or you guys were able to sustain that? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So when we left Madison Spring Hut, we kind of fanned out some of us going kind of due east towards the ravine, uh, the Great Gulf, and then others heading more towards, uh, I guess, the southeast towards Star Lake, kind of in a grid pattern. So we're each probably maybe 10 to 20 feet apart from each other to the side, trying to keep the same pace. You know, so we were, we were still all there. We could see each other, but we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the wind really picked up as we were doing that. And uh, a lot of us just kind of found shelter behind whatever boulder we could. So we were looking at each other kind of from behind boulders, trying to figure out who's still exposed, who's doing okay, and who's not. I've been in big winds, but, but when I looked over and saw, you know, a 250-pound man basically ice climbing, but on horizontal ground, <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty big wind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He was, he was like essentially crawling, crawling, uh, trying to get behind the boulder that we were. Yeah. And from there we, we, we kind of all reconvened on the leeward side of the Adams uh, behind this really big boulder. Uh, we all basically fit behind it. So we traversed over there. There was a real big gust that, and I, you can pro, you can YouTube it. It's the, the clips kind of everywhere, but yeah, just total annihilation of humans. <laughs> the, the, the gust took us, took people over off half the feet. team right off their feet. Yeah, yeah, and blowing them towards the Great Gulf. Uh, and that was that was kind of the second big like, holy moly, this wind is this wind is something fierce. Yeah, no, no doubt. So you reconvene, and you guys are looking for GPS to locations at this point, huh? Uh, some of the first uh, locations that the personal locator beacon gave to us. So you're trying to clear that general area, uh, and you're reconvening behind that big boulder to move out? Yeah, we were trying to 
clear that general area at first. And then when we reconvened behind the big bolter, we, we realized we had pretty specific GPS coordinates that we were looking for. The challenge then was trying to figure out from exactly where we are, kind of which direction do we have to go and how many yards away do we have to go to, to maybe find those coordinates kind of spot on. You know, obviously a ton of blowing snow and, and hard wind. So as soon as you left the tra trail, you know, you start post-holding up to your waist. So the more accurate we could be and have a plan of, and a general idea of like, okay, we need to go exactly that way, uh, 500 yards and down, down slope, maybe 50. Once we realized that, then we all kind of started heading that direction with some people staying kind of up on the trail, you know, the ridgeline on the trail where it was hard packed and some of us heading more down uh, into the, the spruce traps and the deep snow and post holing and just trying to get to that spot. But at the same time, keeping your head up and scanning for any kind of signs or clues that uh, she may be there. Mm -hmm. Did was she located off to your right or left or how did you guys, when you located her, you know, signal each other or. She, yeah. So there was one, uh, the person I found her, I think it was Jeremy, um, if, if memory serves me correctly, but he, uh, he was a few feet up slope from me and a few feet in front of me and him and Maddie, I believe actually saw her pack first, which had blown down slope, maybe a hundred yards. Um, and it was stuck kind of in the scrub pines there. And then they started looking around pretty fiercely because if you find your pack, then she's probably close by. Right. And Jeremy found her laying, laying in the snow. And then he kind of just started waving his arms like, hey, everybody come over here type of thing. So I wasn't too far off. It was pretty easy for me to get there um, where some people had to come from a, a bit more distance. But yeah, that's we found her pack first and then we found her after that. And do you guys have the litter at this point or? We did have the litter. Yeah. Somebody was specifically responsible for having the litter. Um, well, there's two people because yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we brought the litter over. We looked around for any other personal belongings that may have not been in her pack or on her body. Um, specifically looked for any obvious signs of trauma. Mm -hmm. It was very, very obvious right off the bat that, uh, she hadn't survived um, she was frozen solid so that was uh we didn't have to do that although i do believe some of the leaders of the group check for vital signs just to to do that when hypothermia sets in they can look frozen but still have very 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 faint signs mm -hmm. of life so yeah it was it was pretty pretty rigorous um we also f realized quickly that the the litter wasn't going to work just from the wind. Our, our plan and what we did was we ended up just tying a rope uh, around her torso under our arms and back to the hut where we could actually properly load her into a litter. Mm, pretty, pretty severe conditions and pretty severe thing and had to do uh, what you had to do to, to, to get her out of there. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the, in the moment, because the conditions were so harsh, uh, I don't, you, you're not really thinking of it as a human, as a daughter, as a, you know, a wife, it's more of a load, like, Hey, we just got to get, like, we just got to get back to shelter where we can then kind of figure out what to do next. But that probably it's less than a quarter mile from where we found her over to the hut. And that was directly into the headwind. So we we're, we we're walking in and that was really hard. Cause you know, I, I remember everything was iced, right. And your baklava's ice so it's hard to breathe and your goggles are ice so I was looking at a little tiny peak hole in the right hand corner of my goggles trying not to trip or step on something so and navigate uh, yeah yeah it was just it was just all right well let's just get there you know it's a quarter mile can't, it's not beyond anything any of us can do so let's just let's just do it as fast as we possibly can and literally pushing yourself into the wind to get there it was a team effort for sure yeah mm-hmm I was at, at one point I just put my hand out to like feel for the person in front of me and <laughs> like, okay, just follow them. You know, yeah. like, I can't see anything. So let's just follow them. Um, but yeah, it was, yep. Yeah. It's a, it's a crazy situation. You get back to the Madison spring hut, package her up properly and down the trail you guys go, huh? So we, uh, we loaded her into the, into the litter, uh, tied her off obviously as well as we possibly could. Uh, her leg, she was, Mostly in a fetal position, but one leg was kind of frozen straight out. 
So put her in the litter on her side where how we found her, then her leg would have been catching on all the trees and everything on the sides of the trails. So we had to litter her on her back with her leg kind of straight up, just kind of balance the load that way. Parts of the trail, we could just slide her down. And then other parts we had to, you know, do a proper litter carry. And uh, there were a few steeper sections where we did litter lowers or whatever we kind of had to do to get, get moving in the right direction. Right. I'd say, I don't know, maybe a mile down the trail, we learned that there was going to be a four-wheeler or a snowmobile coming up as far as they could up the Valley Way Trail, which, and they were supposed to, they were going to relieve us when, once we got to them, but they could only go so far. It definitely helped raise the spirits. Yeah. <laughs> when you're yeah. going really slow down the slope with a, with a litter, it's like, oh, okay, well, we only have two and a half miles to go instead of four. So right. That was, that was, that was good. Yeah. But I think when you guys get to the bottom, that's where I kind of took over. Yeah. yeah. It's just uh, that experience of a guy like you, of all you've done, and experiencing some of the worst weather in that situation is just uh, extraordinary. I, I think the only comparable weather I've ever experienced, at least the winds that high and the wind chill that low, was on Denali in Alaska Yeah, when we were there. Mm. And that was sustained for a couple of days, but we had a tent, right? We didn't, we didn't really leave the tent, but... To experience the wind and the blowing snow air when you were actually exposed to it, it felt kind of like you were drowning because it was just blowing snow particles so hardly into your mouth and you couldn't really breathe. That's an experience that's it's pretty unique. <laughs> mm, no, that's a that's a that's an interesting description. <laughs> Thanks, Brett. I, re- I really appreciate you you bringing that and bringing that experience of going up on the mountain that day and actually uh, recovering, Kate. There was, um, I think it's something that we're all proud of. And I think knowing those mountains specifically really, really well helped. And as far as organization and actually execution of the, of our mission, and we were only one part of it, right? Like there are other teams out there going in different regions. Mm-hmm. I think we all left pretty proud. Uh, and I think it went off pretty flawlessly compared to what it could have. No, I would. Uh, it's definitely something where um, it's unfortunate. We really feel for family and, and Kate. That's oh, why we, we do it. We appreciate what you do. Those A teams, uh, like I said, the Navy SEALs of the search and rescue uh, teams for sure. Thanks. Thanks for everything you guys did that day for sure. And that, yeah, thank you. We wouldn't have been there if it wasn't organized. And now we continue with my interview that Ty Gagne conducts regarding the operations of the Kate Matrasova search and rescue mission. It, Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Is, was there a point in this process where you were th- already thinking about day three? Uh, and if so, what what are you thinking about doing or had it, had it not gotten to that point yet? It really hadn't got to that point because she was located about 2 p.m. And that's about the time, you know, right afternoon, you're starting to talk about day three. You're talking about teams. You're talking about you're, you're making all your plans for day three, you know, in the afternoon of day or, you know, day two. And that's when you start, you know, because the morning you want to get there, you want to land, you want to have all your plans in place. So we might have started laying the groundwork for them, um, especially with air assets, just saying availability for the following day, uh, starting to put that, that, that thought process in. But as far as, you know, hey, these teams, that team and making up uh, assignments, no, we, we were going to try to finish out at least into that like two o'clock area. And then we would have started making those uh those plans. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about communication during the mission with ground teams? And then are, are you communicating with New Hampshire Army National Guard and Civil Air Patrol? That, do you have direct communications with them? Yes. And that, that facility that we use, the, the Department of Safety's uh, command post is awesome. We have all kinds of radio systems. Uh, Gorham Fire had a bank of radios they actually came up and let us use. So every we tried to get every search and rescue member a radio or at least buddy them up. So every so there was probably more radios deployed in that Matrasova incident than 
ever was before and ever is again because radio communication has always been a challenge, A, because of the expense of it. So the, the, the search and rescue teams have some radios, not all. Uh, I think we're getting to that point where most of them are getting radios, which is which is really awesome. But we weren't there yet, so Gorham Fire had a whole bank. Uh, I think they brought 10 or 12 extra radios up there for use, and we tried to get those in the hands of everybody we could because we knew how dangerous things could be and one person could get into trouble and the other person may not know because of the communication. You're, you're right. Just the communication between person to person, 40 mile an hour winds at negative, you know, 45, uh, is, is crazy. You gotta, you know, you know, you're talking into the wind, the wind noise over the microphones. Uh, you have everything covering your skin. So the, even your lips, you're trying to not expose those. It, it is hard just to communicate amongst the two of, you know, your teammate. Never mind, try to get on a radio and radio down to us. So there, w- there was some definitely some radio non-capabilities above Treeline for sure, just because of those reasons. And, and to the point where when they, they located her, you know, our first question is, and it always is, is she alive or is she deceased? And we didn't know for 30 minutes after that we recovered that we she was deceased because of radio communications. Those guys were in some epic wins. You, you can Google that situation where, you know, it just picks guys off their feet and, and throws them on that mountain that day. They were... Yeah crawling on their hands and knees in this wind. Now now you want them to tell you about it because that's what search and rescue managers do. They want to know. <laughs> and that we want to know because right, right. we need to plan for the next step. Uh, do we need an Army National Guard uh, helicopter to try to make that evac if there's any, if she's still alive? Do we, we need to set that next stage? Yeah, communication was horrendous, even though it was good because it was horrendous up there because it was hard to talk to. We had a lot of radios deployed, and we had good communications, I would say, below tree line because people could actually talk. We did have another team, like I said, over on the other side of the mountain. Uh, Radio communications, not so good there. I've always had those struggles in the mountains because, yeah, it's not line of sight anymore. It's wrapping around the mountain, and it's very difficult Trying to use different repeaters off different mountains uh, is a good way, but the Great Gulf is a is a very difficult place to hit. We usually use the Forest Service Wildcat to try to hit that country. Again, spotty, but everything mm-hmm. on our side was fairly decent till you got above tree line. So you're notified that they they locate her. Unfortunately, tragically, she didn't survive. And I think the important thing for people to realize is the mission doesn't end there. Um, you have teams descending, but there's also work to do, and it's very difficult work to do after that with notifications to family. But in a case like this, I think, and you talked about when, when we had our discussion, you were dealing in, with and managing a number of different things in the days that followed that. And so maybe we could just walk your listeners through that piece of it. Yeah, it's this, yeah, when, when the victim is found, the search manager's job has really just begun. Uh, there's still a lot of calls. Uh, first calls you got to make off is call your teams back um, to l- let them know the subject's been located and, you know, you can abort your mission. You can go back because we don't want them to continue climbing up the mountain if there's not necessary to it, not necessarily to it, where, again, communication jumps into that. So and the difficulty of it, I think actually I sent somebody over to try to get the other team on the on the other side of the mountain uh, with a mobile unit to try to tell them because we couldn't communicate with them that it's, you know, the subject's been located um, and you, you can abort your mission. So um, first thing you, you want to do is let everybody know uh, so they can start their way back because if they're still making two steps up, you know, that's two steps they didn't have to make up and that's still two steps that puts them in jeopardy. So turn everybody around. That's a lot of communication, a lot of radio. Uh, cell phones have been huge too. Uh, you know, we, we have probably have sometimes better cell phone coverage than we have radio coverage. So using those, again, locate, you know, contacting your, your command staff because you got to let headquarters in Concord know that the subject's been located. The press is going to start calling as soon as that, that word is out. They're going to want to know. So you're already trying to, you know, contact A, you got to contact the next of kin. So that that's the next probably the, the start um, and inform them. And that's, you know, that's the tough part. And that's the part that, you know, I usually 
fall in a role because that was kind of my role. And I had talked to her husband, Charlie, that morning, uh, again, to just tell him what we were doing, tell him what everything happened that night, everything that happened that day, show him maps. I remember he made the comment, it was a sunny day in Gorham, and he's like, it doesn't, the weather doesn't seem that bad out there. It's sunny out. And, and I pointed up on the ridge. You could see the ridge from his hotel room, um, probably might have been Jefferson, but you could look up there. It looked like a cloud hanging. And I said, that cloud that you look like it's hanging there, that's snow and that's blowing snow. And I said, you know, it's still, it's horrendous up there. You know, here it seems nice, but up there it's, it's, it's a whole different world. Um, and to keep them informed. So, and then going down there in person in this day and age with social media, it's a, it's a race, uh, depending your search and rescue mission to, to beat those types of things to the family so they are informed first and you know chad and miller and i uh thank goodness chad was around uh he's our medical examiner anyways and works for worked at that time for gorham fire went down with me to to let charlie know that we had locator and she was deceased and that, that's a tough thing too uh just dealing with that seeing that if he needs anything if we can help him with anything tell him that you know we've called the funeral home we have a funeral home responding giving him that information and then you know the search after i roll out of that we go right to you know the funeral guys that are stationed there and and waiting for the victim to come off the mountain and then we go to the funeral home and we take all the evidence at that point you know backpacks um everything that we can uh we organize that we inventory it we uh you know, we, we stay until the ME gets there um, so they can do a cause of death. Uh, yeah. And then in this case, you know, Kate was frozen and uh, it, it took a little bit. It took a little bit. It wasn't an easy thing uh, for them or, or us. So it took some time, uh, but it continues to roll out. And then the next day, and this is uh, this is what I shared with you. I remember the next day, you know, starting the report at my office and the phone would ring and it'd be a reporter from generally New York City area. And I'd answer those questions. And the next thing, you know, Sue, my administrative assistant would come in and she'd put three uh, messages down for me to call these other people. And this happened all day long. That's all I did was talk on the phone. Um, You know, about two hours into it, I stopped and I Googled Kate Matrasova because I know this was an extraordinary rescue with extraordinary circumstances, but it seemed to be getting a lot more attention than, um, than I thought it would. And I can see by what Kate had done in her lifetime that she had made an impact on a lot of different people and certainly was considered, you know, one of the best in her business. So I think that lended so much more to it, her accomplishments up to this point. Um, so, and then it was, it was, it was like a day, two days worth of calling, 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 uh, to get the, the information out to, to make sure all these, uh, news medias were called and contacted. So, and they, they wanted quotes, they wanted this, they wanted that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's that the search mission doesn't end, you know, on the recovery, uh, it's days, it's months, it's that report, putting it all together, weather reports out of Mount Washington. And we're very lucky to have a weather station on Mount Washington because we could get up-to-date information for the National Guard, for Civil Air Patrol, uh, for our people on the ground. Hey, it looks like there's going to be a window here. Uh, looks like winds are going to subside then. I mean, what a lucky thing that to have, you know, a weather station, the Mount Washington Observatory right there that, you know, we can call up and get that information that's 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 precious to a search and rescue mission, uh, a successful one for sure. So with that, you know, with that in mind, and I think the theme all through this, these discussions that you've been having with those involved and the, and from my perspective, just I've tried you're trying and other people is trying to turn this into a learning opportunity and that that's let that be the legacy of Mm -hmm. the Kate Matrasova story. What, what are some takeaways for listeners who go out into the backcountry and recreate? What are some takeaways? How can they help the search manager if they get into trouble? What are some simple things that, that people who get into distress can do that actually helps you in your efforts to help them. 
Yeah, and I think Kate's a perfect example of this. She tried self-rescue. I'm a firm believer in self-rescue because you don't know the capabilities of what's going on you know, within the, within the search crews or the weather. Uh, it could be changing to getting worse. Uh, Kate grabbed her personal locator beacon and, and sent it off. That was, that was her. She tried to self-rescue. She tried to get to a point of safety, uh, and she knew it, and she just couldn't get there. She was, you know, close but not couldn't get there. She, she had just underestimated the weather conditions. And every time it, it, it's... I find, and we talk about this tie all the time because it seems like every time we talk, there's another search and rescue that could have been prevented by a little more investigation or a little more paying attention to the weather. And, you know, 30 mile an hour winds are nothing to mess with. They, they may not sound that bad, but you get up on top of a mountain, 30 mile an hour will push you around. And then you have snow on top of that that's blowing so you can't see. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, it, it, it adds so much. And if you're not an experienced mountaineer and started off baby steps, these things can get in trouble and kill you. You know, people that decide to go run Franconia Ridge because they're trail runners without, you know, actually looking at there's maybe some history of it. And there's three, four feet of snow up there and the ice conditions and, you know, things like that. It, it's all preparation. And there are a lot of people that come to the Whites and they prepare for it. They make calls. I've talked to them because they, they want to know the situation. They want to actually talk to a physical person. And should I do this? Should I do that? Um, you know, some of the work the Forest Service is doing is, is giving information out to a lot of these people that enjoy going hiking in the White Mountains. And they want them to understand conditions down below in May at, you know, 80 degrees. Isn't 80 degrees at the top of the ridge? Um, it, it's a different temperature. It may be a different weather. Uh, and that, that's so significant. You can bring your gear, you can bring your 10 essentials, which is going to help you survive, but knowing what you're getting into and preparing yourself for it and not putting yourself over that, over that line. I, I, uh, you know, and I think in Kate's, she was a very confident person, um, to look at her itinerary, what her plan was, was aggressive during the summer. Uh, and then you put snow onto that, uh, wind conditions. Uh, it, it's, it was unreasonable. It was unreasonable. And I looked at it right away. And because I've dealt with it time and time again, I, that was very unreasonable to have, have an itinerary like that. And like I said earlier in the podcast that, you know, I look at people's itinerary that isn't as ambitious and yet it's a a couple hours more than they thought they were going to be. And I can look at that itinerary and generally know that they are going a lot slower than they thought. And it's going to be about, you know, an hour to two hours beyond what they thought. So, but having that knowledge, knowledge is, is priceless, I believe, and going, knowing where you're going and then getting local information, whether it's from local people or local sources. I remember going hiking in Idaho, um, and I met with a local game warden, and I said, do I really need bear spray, you know? And he, and he said to me, he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, you really do need bear spray. So, And here's my canister. Just drop it off when you're through. Um, but again, I, you know, sometimes I think that's a hype, but I asked. I'm like, do I need can bear spray? Yeah, I, I would recommend it because the time I tell you, Wayne, that you don't need bear spray is the time you're going to need bear spray. And, and that's the same yeah. answer I would have gave as a game warden too. Um, but here I am as a game warden asking that question, do I really need bear spray? Yeah, you really need bear spray, Wayne. So, But at, not asking that question and going hiking without bear spray would be negligent. So the same thing, mm-hmm. going hiking without that weather report, knowing what the conditions are, going hiking without my gear, for especially for winter, and, and having maybe doing some little experiences. Let's say, let's hike up to the ridgeline today. Um, you know, it's predicted 20-mile-an-hour winds. Just maybe stick my head out and see how it is and turn around and go back. To get that experience, to, to know that, maybe hire a mountaineering guide. Um, hey, this is what I want to do. And, you know, people die in this and they die in the whites and they die around the world from winter hiking. Let's go with someone that knows what they're doing, that can, you know, train me, that can give me those experiences. And Kate had done that. She had, she had done that. She had gone on some expeditions, but I I think she might've underestimated the white mountains. I just, when you look at what she had done in the heights of, you know, Kilimanjaro to Mount Washington is significantly Mount Washington's lower, but I always tell people there's a reason trees don't grow up there. 
you know right there's a reason and the reason is the weather is horrid um and that's that's what you got to look at you know look, look at out west when the trees start growing you know you get up into the high peaks i mean six thousand feet there's still trees out there uh compared to the east in the white mountains we don't have trees at six thousand feet there's a reason um we know you know generally at four thousand feet we start losing our trees and there's a reason for that and it's because it's has the world's worst weather uh we've coined that and i i I believe it i believe it you know some of these guys that train for these huge hikes you know k2 everest uh kilimanjaro live in this area to train uh to 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 have that experience of those those high peaks at a low peak so i think it's, it's a very unique place that that we live in in new hampshire and have that resource but you know people got to understand it and they can't Put it in their Rolodex or their calendar that we're going to hike on Friday, you know, and be there. And no matter what happens, we're going to hike Friday. That's I got it in my calendar. So that's I got Friday off. We're going to hike Friday. I got this going on Saturday. I got that going on Sunday. You get up there, you know, it's going to be winds out of the northwest at 35 miles an hour, gusting to 50. You know, um, we just had a snowstorm of two feet. Trails aren't broken. Um, Nope, Friday's it. I'm going Friday. Doesn't matter. So I go Friday. And that's the mentality, and it's a mentality of goal-oriented people. And you and I have been, you know, guilty of the same thing. We we have a goal, we have it set, and we're going to achieve it. That is a yep. goal-oriented person. So, yeah, flexibility, uh, knowledge is the the most key things in most situations, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. Um, is there anything I I didn't ask you that I, that you thought I would, or is this the I think it's been a Where great, wind it down. great conversation, and you know it's funny. You just, uh, I've had so many guys say, "I don't know what I'm going to talk about," and go through this, and I just had that same thought when we started. I'm like, you know, I think I told you we'd do 15 or you know 20 minutes, and then be done. And you know, I'm looking at the time, and it's you know 50 minutes, and um, mm. it's just it's so easy to talk about it when it's been part of you so long, and you've come up through those ranks, uh, through the fishing game, doing you know from line searches to starting to manage and starting to be trained by these lieutenants uh, to start managing it, getting those responsibilities and, and, and working your way up through to actually being a search manager and then working with another lieutenant who's in charge of the search and rescue team. And we work extremely well together. Uh, we all have our niches and we know what we're strong in, what we're weak in, and we, we use those. And, and it's a team. You know, Jim Nealon's the current, uh, you know, mission chief, uh, search and rescue uh team leader and i loved working with jim we just we worked extremely well together we knew you know our our strengths and our our weaknesses and we just worked extremely well together as i did with all the lieutenants uh you know uh, lieutenant bagardis he was always fun i I look up to him he was one of the reasons i became a game warden uh when i was in high school uh sergeant brian rolled him in uh, as a trainee and that's when i met you know tall bagardis as a trainee and i've always looked up to him through my tenure and certainly as a search and rescue person he took it so seriously and took it to heart so much um that i learned from him and i watched him do all that highlighting and you know paid attention and, and and took those when he was gone and and brought that to the table as much as i could so yeah and i just to echo your words i i've talked to past and and the present search you know team leader and and jim and it's just fishing game just does such a nice job selecting the right people and and uh they're they're great they're great individuals so talented at what they do and not sure we can thank them enough for the work that they do them because I often think that there's the ground search, but that doesn't happen um, just on a whim. There's a lot that goes into it Mm. and it's, it's the search manager's role and responsibility. And I just appreciate the opportunity to reverse roles today and have you share some perspective on everything that goes into that aspect of a search and rescue mission. So thank you. Yeah. As did I, thank you for doing that role reversal because it, it makes it's so much easier to be being interviewed and asking those questions because as I'm talking, you're formulating your questions. And I certainly appreciate that as, as trying to do interviews myself. Yeah. And, and could we finish with the, the Kate Matrasova, uh, the axe, the ice axe that was found? I just, I think that's a good way to, to wrap up this uh, series of podcasts. Uh, yeah. There was a uh, few falls ago, I was contacted by a gentleman who read the fir- who read where you'll find me was just very, 
compelled by Kate's story and the story of the rescuers. And he um, joined his father one, probably two or three summers ago now. He wanted to go up because in the book he read that that Kate's mountaineering axe was among some of the items that were not ever recovered. And that he, you know, he went up there to be there to try to connect with the terrain and the story and to, and to see if he could recover her axe. And they were just getting ready to leave. Uh, he and his father, they had been there for a couple of days, stayed at Madison hut. And he said, you know, dad, I'm just going to go out one more time. I just want to go one more time. He went out on his own, was walking around a little bit, looked down the slope and there on a, in the grass was um, a mountaineering axe right at about the spot where, where Kate tragically lost her life. And he got in touch with Kate's husband and sent a photograph of the axe and said, I found this in the vicinity. Is this hers? And it was. And so he sent that axe to Kate's um, husband. And I think that's just a really, you know, really, I think special piece of closure. Uh, And also just an indication of how her story has impacted so many people in different ways. I would agree. And that's how we're going to close uh, this Warden's Watch podcast. Thank you so much, Ty, for being with us. In closing, on this final podcast about the Kate Matrasova incident, I'd like to dedicate it to all the search and rescue volunteers. There are so many out there over so many years, and they have done so much uh, throughout the communities around the United States and specifically in New Hampshire. And if you would like to help contribute to those search and rescue teams, most of them are volunteer and are nonprofits. Two of them that were highlighted during these podcasts was Mountain Rescue Services and the Androscoggin Valley Search and Rescue Team, both nonprofit entities. You can make donations directly to them. Others that we engage a lot with, the PEMI Search and Rescue Team, New England Canine. And if you wanted to contribute directly to the New Hampshire Fishing Game Search and Rescue effort, we have a nonprofit partner, the New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and you could just earmark your donation for search and rescue. And finally, there's a hike safe card, a volunteer card that you can purchase through the New Hampshire Fishing Game Department, and that will help contribute to search and rescue missions in the state of New Hampshire. I'd like to thank all those volunteers that selflessly give of themselves for others. Thank you. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.